what I like to do is, uh, before we begin, what I like to do is, uh, I'm going to go around the room. I'd like you to give me your first name and where you're from, so I have a general idea. Because if you sit through two sessions, I might want to call on you or ask you a question. And so, we'll start back over here. What's your name, sir? John. John, where are you from? Fresno. Fresno. Kayla from Sanger, California. Sanger, okay. Yomi, Loma Linda. Loma Linda. Michael, Santa Rosa. Santa Rosa. From where? Vancouver, Vancouver. I was just in Canada speaking on this. Vancouver, From Vancouver? Vancouver. Vancouver. Wow. New York. New York. Where? Redlands. Where's that? Oh, right by Loma Linda. Okay. Sacramento. Sacramento. Uh, she, uh, something happened to her. She's not feeling well. And so. Yeah, the second session I'll be having part two, and that's this is the the first presentation will be foundational. What we're doing is laying a foundation. Uh, the second one we make the practical application, and uh, and uh, Lord is really blessed with this uh, presentation. Uh, you didn't tell me where you're. Judah from Santa Barbara. Judah from Santa Barbara. Samantha from Boston. From Boston. Boston. Shantae from New Mexico. From New Mexico. Sean from New Mexico. Sean and Shantae from New Mexico. Okay, all right. Well, let's begin with a, a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we're asking that you would bless each and every one of us with understanding. Please make this presentation clear. Lord, we want to honor your name. We want to be like Jesus. So please, bless each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we have today uh, recorded in the military 7,500 soldiers bearing arms. Back in the early 1900s when the government asked uh, each denomination to send chaplains, our church said no. And you think, well, why would our church say no? Well, we're going to cover that. Can someone go in the military and preach our gospel message? The whole gospel message that we preach? Absolutely not. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, well... If our church said no to the chaplaincy, how did we get so far that now we have soldiers in the military bearing arms? That means they're trained to kill somebody. But, but pastor, they only kill the enemy. Well, let me ask you the question. Who's your enemy? Who did God say your enemy was? Iraq? Are they your enemy? You know how we are. Anybody have a favorite sports team or anything? You know, they, they, they win or they do something. You say, we. Huh? Well, we won. You, 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 you say, we. Uh, same thing in the United States. Something happens and we, we're doing this, we're doing that. But who are your enemies? I don't know about you, but my Bible says pray for your enemies. And I'm still waiting for someone to show me the consistency of shooting someone and praying for them at the same time. I have a story that I'll close in the second session with such a story as that. Someone prays with somebody and someone shoots somebody. Is that consistent with the gospel? Who are we to preach this message to? The whole world except those who are at war with the United States. No? There wasn't an exception in Matthew 28? Okay. Well, let's look over some things we're going to cover. We're going to cover the draft versus volunteering, a theocracy, the sixth commandment. What's the sixth commandment? Thy shall not kill. And we'll learn from the 1950s when the evangelicals wanted to be more patriotic. They went into the Bible and they, they, they wanted to change the sixth commandment from thy, sh thy shalt not kill to thou shalt not murder. And is that a correct translation of the text? And then the fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day. Can you join the military and can you get into a certain job where you will not have to kill? Well, first when you join the military, you need to understand that you're first a soldier before anything. You might have all the computer skills in the world and that's all you might do. 
But when it comes time for war, your first mission, your first obligation is to be a soldier. And the second one is the fourth commandment. Can we keep the Sabbath? Some issues that we'll be covering also, church's position on non-combatancy, the church's position on chaplaincy, Revelation 13, the role and purpose of the military, and identity crisis. Now I want to put a disclaimer out before we go any further is that I'm not here to condemn anyone who has joined the military. Amen? I don't want you leaving here and saying, Pastor Philip says, if you join the military, you're going to hell and you're an evil person. You didn't hear that from me. Amen? Amen? Amen means I agree. So, amen? Amen. amen. And, I don't, and I also want to make another disclaimer. The Bible says in John 15 that you're to love me. It says love one another. That's a command. So I'm going to hold you to it. Well, you ought to hold me to it too. Amen? The Bible says that we're to love one another. That's a command. So no matter what I say here, you're to love me. Amen? And, and I'm to love you. And I'm going to hold you to that. No matter what I say, you are to love me. So, and also, there is an identity crisis in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Draft versus volunteering. If you uh, enlist in the military, if you voluntarily, voluntarily enlist in the military, you lose all of your rights. Now, before we go any further, I spent seven and a half years in the military. I got out of the military as an NCO, as a non-commissioned officer. So I'm not a novice in this area. Amen? So when you enlist in the military, you lose all your rights. When you are drafted, you still retain some of those rights. Now, what has happened is I just did a presentation in Toronto, Canada, Kingsway. And uh, we had some non-combatancy or, or, or uh, people who were conscientious objectors in the Second World War. And they would not bear arms and they would not fight. And these men were persecuted from their own country because they wouldn't bear arms. They were sent to uh, work camps. Labor was very hard. Some were even beat up, misunderstood. Chastised from their own family. Why? Because they wanted to be like Jesus. These were men. And you should have heard their testimonies. Powerful testimonies. But they were drafted. There's a difference. However, the army and the military will draw up some scenarios to try to see if you're inconsistent in your theology. And we'll cover that while we're here. So, you lose all your rights and... Uh, how many were at the last uh, GYC in Minnesota? My book had been out for like two months. And Mark Finley, anybody know Mark Finley? Mark Finley said the ACM, Adventist Chaplain's Ministry, told him that when you join the military now, you will have to bear arms and you will have to work on the Sabbath. Well, I've been saying that all along. But now ACM is backing it up. A draft. Before your entrance in the United States into World War, legislation was enacted granting entire exemption from combat duty and the bearing of arms to all conscientious objectors. This general classification covers non-combatant organizations. Therefore, by Congressional Action, Seventh-day Adventists are included among those who are guaranteed exemption from combat duty during war on the basis of religious training and belief. So, when we go in, we used to be, and we used to register ourselves as non-combatants. Now, let me ask you a question. As a pastor, I have someone that wants to get baptized. And all oh, they're on fire for the Lord. And they want to be like Jesus. But their work is saying, listen, we're requiring that you work on the Sabbath. And so they come to me and say, Pastor, could you write a letter? And could you talk to my boss? And I say, well, sure. And so I go and talk to their boss. And I say, listen, this is a matter of conscience and conviction. That they believe that the seven-day uh, uh, Sabbath is, is no matter of, uh, of uh, uh, an opinion, but that it's a command from God. And they want to live up to how God is leading them. And I go through this whole scenario, and then, the, and, and then their boss says this to me, but you have another seven-day Adventist here. It's been a seven-day Adventist for over ten years, and they're here working on the Sabbath. You see the conflict? But it seems that the only place where we can, there is a place where we can break the Sabbath and we can kill legitimately. And the church has 
no recourse. Just join the military. We're saying it's okay. And you go to many churches and you go into their and in the foyers and you got the, 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 the soldier hall of fame. Now remember, I'm not here to condemn anybody that joins. I'm here to say we ought to question ourselves whether this is right or wrong. Amen? Why did our church say no at first? And the government respected that. What happened? Now we even have a department at the General Conference on chaplain ministry. Our church says no because there's a mingling of church and state. We don't want to be a part of that. And we cannot preach our message in this final hour of earth's history. A theocracy. But pastor, what about in the Old Testament when God commanded them to go to war? Well, let me ask you a question. Who in here can judge salvifically? Judge whether someone's saved. Anybody in here? Who's the only one that can do that? Come on, you know who. who? God. God is the only one that can do that. So in the Old Testament, when God says to Israel, go and destroy utterly the Amicalites, God had judged them salvifically. They were lost. And God used Israel as the tool. Now, how did he do that? He communicated either to the prophet or he communicated to the priest. Remember the Urim and the Thummim? What side would light up when God approved? The Urim. What would happen when he disapproved? The Thummim. Remember that? How many remember Ai, the story of Ai? When Israel didn't seek God's counsel. Little old Ai. God didn't tell them to go to war there. They went there with a little old city. And they got beat up quite bad. Because they didn't seek God's counsel. God did not tell them to go to war with Ai. Amen? So, a theocracy. If you believe, pastor, if you believe it is wrong for one to take human life in war, how do you explain the wars of the Old Testament in which God commanded Israel to engage? Well, let's answer that question. Israel was not was now at Sinai to be taken into close and peculiar relation to the Most High, to be incorporated as a church and a nation under the government of God. That's what a theocracy means, God's in charge. Whether they had a king or not, they were still underneath a theocracy. Amen? When Saul and David became king, what did they have to do? They had to go out and read God's law, showing that they were subservient to God, that they still had a head. Amen? To be incorporated as a church and a nation under the government of God. The message to Moses for the people was, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagle wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye should be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. How much of the earth is God's? So, is everything on it his too? Would you agree with that? So if all the earth is his, that means everything on it. And that includes people. That means you and me. All of us belong to God. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moses returned to the camp and having summoned the elders of Israel and repeated to them the divine message. Their answer was, all that the Lord hath said, we will what? Did they? No. The covenant was, all that the Lord says we will do. We will keep his commandments. We will do what he tells us to do. Did they do it? No, they did not. Thus, but they did say it. Thus, they entered into a solemn covenant with God, pledging themselves to accept him as their ruler, by which they became, in a special sense, the subjects of his authority. That's Patriots and Prophets, page 303. Okay? The Lord foresaw that Israel would desire a king, but he did not consent to a change in the principles upon which the state was founded. The king was to be the what? Vicegerent of the Most High. God was to be recognized as the head of the what? The nation. And his law was to be enforced as the supreme law of the land. Now, God says this, God already predicted, he already foresaw that he was going to overthrow a theocracy, that he was going to do away with a theocracy. He says this, Thou profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come, when iniquity shall have an end, thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn. And it, and it shall be no more until he 
come, he come, whose right it is, and I will give it to him. God already foresaw that he would overthrow or do away with a theocracy. So, the kingdom of God was made subject to Babylon, then to Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Are, we, are you with me thus far? Okay, now, but pastor, when did the theocracy end? By divine prediction, the theocracy was limited to a duration to the time of the first advent of Christ. When Christ was on trial, the people declared of Jesus, We will not have this man to reign over us, Luke 19, 14. Pilate asked the question of the Jews, Shall I crucify your king? Listen to the reply. The reply was, We have no king but who? We have no king but who? Caesar. John 19.15, by choosing a heathen ruler, the Jewish nation had completely withdrawn from the theocracy. They had finally rejected God as their king, and God was thereby compelled to reject them as his peculiar nation. The theocracy had come to its end, and the divine fiat was that it should be no more until Christ comes and sets up his literal, visible kingdom on earth. And then... It shall be given to him. This will not take place, however, until after the second advent of Christ. Then he shall sit on the throne of his father, David, and shall reign forever and ever. So when did the theocracy end? At his trial. When, when they announced they had no king but who? So the theocracy is over with. Now let me ask you a question. How can you guarantee... That when you lift up that cold steel, shoulder-slung, uh, gas-operated, semi-automatic rifle, and you pull that trigger, that you can guarantee that that's an enemy of God and that that person is already lost. Can you guarantee that? If you can't guarantee that, should you do it? That's the question. If you can't guarantee that that's the enemy of God, then why would you pull the trigger? You're going to hear later in the second presentation of a chaplain in the military. And he's going to tell you what his purpose is. You're going to hear witnesses and testimonies from soldiers. My brother heard it yesterday. Powerful. You're going to hear testimonies from soldiers. They're going to tell you the role of the chaplain in the military. You're going to be blown away. Your mouth's going to drop. It just, you can't believe. And I'm just going to get to the punch. Now, the chaplain might go in with this intention, that he wants to save souls. Amen? That's his intention. And praise God, that's a noble intention, wouldn't you say? But my question is, what is the military's purpose for that chaplain? See, his intention might be this, but he's going to fulfill the military's purpose. Amen? And the military's purpose is that he legitimizes killing. Because it's not natural for us to pull that trigger, is it? And so there's something within us that says, no. But if you're a soldier, you cannot hesitate when given a command. Or it could cost you your life or your troop. And you're taught that. You're conditioned. And so you can't have a soldier going into combat hesitating to pull the trigger. So they need to have their conscience seared. And so the chaplain, he comes and he says, well, listen, God's on our side. Uh, they're nothing but thugs over there. That's what you're going to hear. You're going to hear it from his own mouth. In the field of combat. A little scary, isn't it? So, we know when it was overthrown. So, Acts 10.34, this is how it was established. You know that pretty much. What about John 18.36? Let's turn to John 18.36 in your Bible. I don't know where mine's at. Okay. John 18.36. John, chapter 18, and verse 36. Say amen when you're there. Amen. Hey, amen. We got one. Anybody else there? I don't know what we'd be using our Bibles here. John 18, 36. The Bible says this. Jesus' answer said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants do what? Now let me ask you a question. If at any time there was a time we should be fighting, it should be for Jesus Christ. Amen? 
And what did Jesus say? No. Because my kingdom's not of what? And you might ask question. Well, what about the, the weapon that Peter had? Well, Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. What did Jesus tell Peter? Put up thy sword. For those who live by the sword shall... Now, that sword he had, if you do a, a linguistic study in the, a language, it was just a, a knife used for, for hunting. Amen? For skinning things. It wasn't like a big, long, long sword, okay? I don't want you leaving here with that idea in your mind. It was for hunting. So, God says, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. Let's continue on with the text. But then it says, I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. He's saying, my kingdom is not of this world. So listen, if you're going to join the military, and we're already fighting, or fighting a, 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 a war right now spiritually, you understand that, right? You understand that we're the church militant. That doesn't mean uh, we're fighting a physical war, but a spiritual war. And then you're going to join another military. You're fighting on two fronts. That's not wise, is it? Now let me ask you a question. And I'm going to show you records of during war where seven-day Adventists were shooting at seven-day Adventists because they were on opposite sides. But pastor, what about Hitler? I had one gentleman ask me, he says, but what, what about uh, uh, that war? Well, let God worry about that. But, but if we wouldn't have done anything as the United States... What would happen? I said, well, then I'll just be preaching this message in German. Amen? I leave that up to God. Like in Jeremiah 24, God says he allowed Israel go into captivity for their own good. He allowed them to do what? To go into captivity for their own good. They went to Babylon. How is that for their own good? Why would he allow them to go into, how do you go into captivity for your own good? Well, their sins had separated them from their God, didn't it? And no longer were they under the protection of God. So God sends them to a heathen nation to protect them. Matter of fact, when it was time to go back home, guess what most of the people did? They stayed. They had it so good in a heathen country, they didn't want to go home. I'm wondering if we're getting that way. Huh? Having so much fun, don't want to go home. Now, the Bible does say occupy. Now, we're supposed to have jobs. We're supposed to continue. I don't want anyone leaving here and going extreme, sell, selling all your stuff, quitting your job, moving out the country, getting a whole bunch of guns. No, the Bible says, occupy till I come. But you should have your bags packed. Aren't we pilgrims? Just passing through? Amen? And so, Jesus says, he says, my kingdom is not this world. Jesus was fighting for the people of the world, not the world. Amen? So, implications. In the days of the theocracy, Israel was first to inquire of God and await his command before going into battle. Today, however, God does not command the armies of the earth. Consequently, the Christian should never be sure if he destroyed human life that he would be doing God's will. Certainly, he could never do so with the assured uh, conviction that he was carrying out a direct command of God. There's just no way you could do that. Do you agree with me? There's no way you could pull that trigger. Now, I had a couple of people that worked with me back in, I think it was 1999. We were working in Detroit. And I had two girls that were in Rwanda during the time of that persecution. They stayed three days underneath their bed. They went to the bathroom there. They did everything. They were scared to go outside. And just outside their door, there was atrocities happening. People were being killed. Her mother was hiding in the woods, and her dad, thank God, wasn't in the country at the time because they were looking for him to kill him. And when the massacring was over, they went outside, and they saw this. And can you imagine what that did to their mind? It was hard to talk to these girls. They didn't trust anybody. And what is the biggest problem we have with these people coming back from Iraq, soldiers coming from, back from Iraq? What do you call it? Stress. Say it louder. Post-traumatic stress syndrome or disorder. You imagine what that does to their mind? It's not natural. 
Now, thank God, Seven Day Adventists, we don't play a lot of those video games, right? Uh, where you're shooting people and killing people. Why do you think it's so easy for these kids to go do that? Huh? Because they've been, they've been desensitized to the value of life. And that's what has to happen when you join the military. You have to be desensitized to the value of life or you're not going to pull that trigger. I remember when we went to, when I was in basic training, the chaplain was with us, the medic was with us. We went in to watch these videos, didn't we? And we watched these movies, and it ripped apart communists, dictatorships. When you left these movies, you hated anybody that wasn't American. You need to be conditioned so you'll be able to pull that trigger. But is that the Seventh-day Adventist message? Can you pull the trigger and yet throw the gospel out with it at the same time? And brothers and sisters, when you pull that trigger, you can't take it back. <laughs> Amen? Like sometimes you've ever said something and it leaves your mouth and you're like, man, if I could just, huh? Anybody ever do that? I'm the only one? Huh? You ever say something, you're like, oh, give it back, give it back, but it's gone. Like email. Send, oh, it's gone. Same thing with that bullet. And you're going to hear testimonies of soldiers that live with this every single day. So, we see here, we cannot guarantee that it's a direct command of God. In the absence of such direct command, Seventh-day Adventists conscientiously believe that they should not bear arms or go forth on missions of destruction, but rather believe that their mission is the same as that of their master, as he stated it in these words, The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's life, but to what? save them. And as he is, so are we in this world. Studies in denominational principles, non-combatancy and government relationships. Now, I want you to listen to this. I got some video clips. Now, this is a chaplain. This is a current chaplain in the military. Now, listen what he's saying to his soldiers, and then I'm going to give you a little biblical study on thy shall not kill versus thy shall not murder. And we're praying that this will work. Thou shalt not kill. Now, we look at scripture, there are different types of killings. And so when God said, thou shalt not kill, he said, thou shalt not murder. Proverbs 24 and 6 says, for with the wise counsel, thou shalt make war. And so when God is saying that there seems to be a time when killing is appropriate. A time to heal and a time to Thank you very much. Now, the Bible had always said, now how many of you have the New King James Version? You got the New King James Version? If you do, your Bible will say in Exodus 20, uh, the sixth commandment will say, thou shalt not murder. But that's not a correct rendition, and I'm going to prove that to you. What they have done is the evangelicals want to become mainstream. They want to say, listen, we're patriotic. We want to be a part of this. So they went back into the language and they tried to take rasa and they tried to twist it to mean thou shalt not murder, which means it's, it's a killing without justification. Amen? But let me ask you a question. When you read the command, thou shalt not murder, in Exodus chapter 20, how do you know what that means? Where's the contextual evidence to give you an uh, understanding of what that means? Is it there? Is it there? No. Nor is it there in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So you don't know what, what, what context God is saying. You, we have to go to other biblical references. Amen? That's why I'm glad Seventh-day Adventists, we use the whole Bible. Amen? And so let's have just a little study on this. The Sixth Commandment is that thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. Not an issue to be resolved simply by going to the commentators and looking at the majority. If we proceeded along these lines, then murder would definitely win. The disciples were but humble men. Without what? And with what? So we know we can, just by what she says in Acts and Apostles, page 77, we know that the disciples had no weapon. So we can't go around and say Peter carried around a weapon because he didn't have a weapon. That was for hunting. Amen? Now, we know that God allowed uh, killing when it came to food. Amen? That was justified. But does God say, thou shalt not murder? Does he say, thou shalt not kill? And what does that mean? Well, a comprehensive anal analyst's analysis of the verb rasa, it's 47 times mentioned in the Old Testament. Exodus 20.13 and Deuteronomy 5.17 lack context. 
in order to clarify the meaning. Also, Proverbs 22.13, Jeremiah 7.9, and Hosea 4.2 do not have a clarifying text. So we can't read it and say, okay, this is what he's meaning by this. You understand? Okay, good. So we have 42 references left. So, Rasa, in connection with the cities of refuge. Of 42 occurrences, 33 of those occurrences are used in connection with the cities of refuge. Now, how many remember the cities of refuge? If you killed someone by accident or you killed someone, you would, you would hopefully make it to the city of refuge for a relative got to you and he had the right to take your life. Amen? And then you would go there, the, peace, the priest would investigate whether... Uh, he. It was a mistake or, or, or whatever, and, and then either if it wasn't and the people did not forgive you, you would stay there until the priest died, then you were forgiven and you could go out of the city of refuge and live. Eleven times for intentional slaying of another human being, i.e. murder. When we take a human life without just cause, that's murder. And what the evangelicals are saying though, but if we go to war and your government says you can kill them, that's not murder, that's just killing. That's what they're saying. So we could be mainstream. Does that make sense? No? Y'all look confused then. Okay, you get that deer in the headlight look. Um, what they're saying is, listen, if you go to war, whatever government you're in, and, and, and you're in, in war and you kill somebody, that's not murder, that's just killing, so you're justified. But that's not the true terminology of the word. So what we have to do is we have to look at other contexts, and we see some other contexts there. Nineteen times in these cities of refuge passages to indicate the accidental taking of human life, i.e. manslaughter or killing in the following text. And there they are. And you can get this all in my book, I Pledge Allegiance. Uh, Ron Dupre wrote a great article, a theological article on Thy Shall Not Kill. Also, Elkhart Mueller does a good job in interpreting uh, Rasa. In three additional passages, number 35, 12, and 27, and 30, the context indicates the broader term kill would be more appropriate since Rasa here cannot be limited to murder. Thus, in 22 of the 33 appearances in the City of Refuge, Passages rasa needs to be translated as kill rather than murder because the context is all encompassing. Amen. Murder is direct; it just it's, it's without just cause. But killing covers all of that. So when God says, "Thy shall not kill," you have to find out what does that mean in the context. Rasa, separate from the cities of refuge, seven out of nine should be translated as murder for contextual reasons. The others could refer to murder, but there's not enough evidence to conclude unequivocally that these were premeditated, so it would be better to translate them as kill, all-encompassing. Now, who's to say whether you're, you're justified for taking a human's life? Can... You make that decision? Who's the only one that should be able to make that decision? Absolutely. No new manuscript evidence supporting a shift from kill to murder. Linguistically and theologically, kill is the preferable translation. Why the change? For evangelicals, the desire to become mainstream churches, the close connection with militarism, and the influence of culture led to a change of the wording of the Sixth Commandment as well as a change in its practice. Because before the 1900s and shortly after the 1900s, most Protestant churches were against any Christian going to war. What's happened? What's happened? It's not that way now, is it? Absolutely not. So what about the fourth commandment? What about the Sabbath? Can those who join the military today keep the Sabbath? The answer is maybe yes. Maybe no. Now ACM, Advanced Chapel Ministry, has now came out and said, no, you cannot keep the Sabbath. You will break the Sabbath. But, but pastor, I'll only be breaking maybe one or two during basic training. And my recruiter said, because you know they're honest men and women, you understand? Uh, they said, I, I'll never be breaking the Sabbath, but listen, what happened if you lost your life that day you were breaking the Sabbath? You willing to take that risk? 
Are you willing to take that risk? But it's only one or two. I had one young lady get up. But, but wouldn't God understand that if I was breaking the Sabbath but saving lives, that that would be okay? So you break one to do another, and who's guaranteeing that you're going to be saving anybody's life? So we've got to ask ourselves the question. Can I put on the uniform and serve God at the same time? In the appendices of this book, I have in the back. How many remember your baptismal vows? Anybody remember the baptismal vows? Okay, only two of you. Ooh, maybe I should have put that up on the screen. You have baptismal vows. When you go to MEP station and you give your oath, what you're gonna, how you're going to uh, uh, defend this country, I, I, have, I have it right here. I, I copied it down. I put it in the back of my book. You read that and then read your baptismal vows and see if you can have them mesh. Can't do it. Impossible. That's why hence the title of the book is I Pledge Allegiance. To who? Can you have dual allegiances? But Pastor Romans 13.1 says that we're to, we're to render unto our country allegiance and stuff like this. Yeah. Until it does what? Crosses the line where it breaks one of God's commands. Amen? And so we got to be careful how we interpret that. You do not have a legal right to worship on Sabbath. It's the commander who decides whether your accommodations can be met. Now, I remember when I was in NCL, we did have some people. Now, I didn't know about the Sabbath, but I knew about Sunday. And I would have some of my soldiers, and they would beg me, can I go to church? Can I go to church? I'd say, well, yeah, sure. But as soon as you're done with church, <laughs> you make sure that you tail in the back here and get to work. Now, do they have a, a right to disregard that command? No, because they said in their vow that they will obey the commands from anybody that's appointed over them. They made that oath. But then once they get there, they're going to say, well, no, not in this instance. Well, wait a minute. You gave an oath. You gave your allegiance that you were going to obey the command of your superiors. And now you're going to turn back on that? Why put yourself in that situation? So... Can you do it? I don't believe you can. If religious requirements cause major conflicts with military training, military mission requirements, unit cohesion uh, and bonding, or are in conflict with safety or the greater good of the unit, the accommodation need not be made. The local commander is the one who makes that determination. Do you all understand that? So when we all went to bivouac, we went to do field exercises, I would say whether you win or not, depending on the what? The mission. Now, this country is at war. How, do you, how easy do you think it is over in Iraq to keep the Sabbath? Pretty good? Keep their day. Friday. And I'm coming out with a presentation. It all leads to Sunday. When, did, when does people of Islam worship? On Friday. To get to Sunday, you only got to get through one more day. What day is that? Huh. We next? I better not get into that. Huh? You're looking at me. Uh-oh. So, who determines whether someone should be working on the Sabbath? The commander. Because you wear their uniform. And remember, when you volunteer, vo voluntarily enlist in the military, you give up how many of your rights? All of them. But when you're drafted, you still retain them. It doesn't mean that they're not going to go after you. Okay? I, when I was listening to some of these uh, conscientious objectors in World War II, when they said they're not going to bear arms and they don't believe in taking life, they don't believe this, the, the, the sergeants and the commanders will say this. Well, what happens if somebody broke into your house and was raping your wife? What would you do then? See, they're trying to get them caught. You see? Well, listen to me. Now, young men and women, I used to be that age one time. But listen, if I got to think about someone looking at my wife all the time wrong, huh? if I got to think about someone looking her up and down all the time, pretty soon I'm going to just have an attitude all the time. Aren't I? Huh? How many young people I counsel today, oh, I think they're cheating on me. I th you can't stop them anyway. They're going to do what they're going to do. Amen? And, and, and they fret and they, they panic and they watch and everything. They make the relationship a mess. And the other one comes and says, I'm not doing anything. I don't know why they're thinking that. And the man's just walking around wishing someone would look at her. He's preconditioned his mind. 
You got people that buy guns and put them in the house and wish somebody break into the house. They won't tell you that. But they're so funny. They watch CNN. They watch all these new channels. Everybody breaking in. They got these guns nice and shined and they're ready. And boy, let someone break into my house. Huh? Let somebody break into my house. I'm going to captain. Uh, they're ready for it. They can't wait. But is that the Christian attitude? Where's faith? Huh? Where's faith in God? Well, pastor, if that happened to you, what would happen? I don't know what happened. If God had me there, I trust in him. He's going to do something. And if he uses me, he uses me. But I'm not going to sit there and go and prepare for it. It's just like martial arts. Any of you in martial arts? I'm going to rain on your parade. <laughs> it's spiritualism. I have a friend named Bionic Pastrana. He's a pastor now, thank God. The guy who was training him could not go any higher because he had to find five people in the world that were as good as he was to fight to go any higher. And there wasn't five alive. There isn't five people alive in the world that are as good as he is. And so Biani came to the conclusion when he got out of it, he says, now I know why he was training me <laughs> to be one of those people. There is not five people alive in the world that is bad as he is. But then he got to looking back on it. It's spiritual. This guy could count like 200 times before the punch even got there. When you went to throw your punch, he counted out. One, two, three, four, five. Six. That's why he could wait till the last second and just move. You couldn't touch him. You couldn't lay a hand on him. No one ever had. They say, he said when he left, he was working on bullets. He was counting out from the sound to that, but I don't know if a bullet's faster than sound, so I hope the guy's still alive. But he said it's spiritual. He said we would sit in the room and he would tell Bianni, watch, I'm gonna disappear in front of this person, and he would literally disappear. Listen, why have the tools if you're not gonna use it? But Pastor, just in case, self-defense. Listen, to be able to use it, you have to have a warlike mind, amen. It said some friends went down and watched Bayani because he was teaching also. And nicest guy you ever meet. But he said when he went into combat mode, his face scared you half to death. It just changed. And Bayani said, I was in warm mind. Bayani said it took him years to get over walking into a room. And with a fraction of a second, he knew how you could take everybody out and no one could stop him. Is that the Christian mindset? Walk into a room and know how you're going to take everybody out in a fraction of a second? But why have the tools if you're not going to be able to use them? Amen? And so he had to be trained. Same thing in the military. They don't train you when you're shooting weapons and then to love everybody. Does that make sense? Well, go out and be really good at shooting this and you're just going to love everybody. No, no, no. You've got to hate somebody to pull that trigger. Amen? It's not natural. But that's totally opposed to the gospel. Is that what Jesus did? Absolutely not. So can you keep the Sabbath? Absolutely not. Should we be bearing arms? Absolutely not. The Sabbath observance situation becomes particularly critical during periods of training, which normally run five or one-half days a week, including Friday night and Sabbath morning. You will be faced with Sabbath training during basics in all branches of active duty. You will have Sabbath challenges in nearly every assignment because the military is a 24-7 operation. Amen? And I hope this is still working. A military member can be ordered to do any lawful task at any time while in military service. To refuse to obey a lawful order of a superior officer or supervisor is an offense punishable under military law. In time of war, I could shoot you on sight if you disobeyed a lawful command. Because what you're doing could cause rebellion within the ranks and you cause the unit to be lost. Did you get that? So if you hesitate, you cause people's lives. And the military understands that. That's why your conscience has to be seared, brothers and sisters. 
to be able to not to va value life, to, to discredit life, depending on what nationality you are or, or where you live. Incredible. That's not God's message. There is virtually no way to avoid some training or make up training on Sabbath in the initial phases of BASIC. Furthermore, there are other training events that can last up to 10 days and others that can last between 30, 3 and 30 days, which will be a problem for Sabbath keepers. Keep in mind, the fact that no one can guarantee you Sabbaths off, you will have some training on the first few Sabbaths of BASIC in all of the branches. While things may ease up later, they may also become more difficult. Much will depend on what you do and the unit to which you are assigned. In short, it depends on many variables over which you will have little or no control. So can you join the military and keep the Sabbath? Absolutely not. Now. However, if I draw up the Sabbath the way I think it should be kept, guess what? I can never break it. I have one gentleman that's a chaplain in the military. He says he's never broke the Sabbath. All the years he's been in the military, well, of course, you've drawn up the Sabbath the way you want it. So, of course, you can't break it, amen? Because you draw up the Sabbath the way you want to keep it, the way you think it should be kept. You've made exceptions here and there. So, of course, you can never break it. Should we solve theological issues by individual convictions and the majority rule or by the word of God? But pastor, I feel. If your feelings ain't educated by the word of God, they're just feelings. Amen. And because you feel doesn't make it right. A lot of young girls and young men, they fall in love because they, they feel right. Huh? Doesn't mean it is right. So, Peter says this in Acts 5.29, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey who? How much of the time? Is there any exceptions? Because I'm in the military? Like I said, if you want to kill and break the Sabbath, somehow our church says hands off. Not in my churches, but somehow the church says hands off. You can do that there, but you can't do it anywhere else. It's inconsistent. God's word must be recognized as above all human legislation. Listen to this now. This is Acts and Apostles, page 69. She says this. God's word must be recognized as above all human legislation. A, thus saith the Lord, is not to be set aside for a what? Or thus saith the... Did you get that? Now I'm in this church and I believe this church is going to go on to the end. What do you say? There's no doubt in my mind. I'm here to stay. But it doesn't mean that sometimes, as, since we got humanity trying to run a divine church, that we make some mistakes. Amen? But thank God we can converse and we can work together. Now, we have some people come in uh, a little later. I, I'm going to have a presentation after this. And, 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 and I made a disclaimer at first. Well, really, I made a claim, a biblical claim that the Bible says that you're to love me. Okay, I just want to make sure that all the new people that come in, that you agree with that, right? Anyone not agree with that? Anyone say that, I don't believe that, Pastor, because we can go to John 14, John chapter 15. Okay? The Bible says you're to love me, and I just want to make sure you remember that, because I don't want to leave here and some of you act like you don't love me. Okay? So, okay, we're clear. Good. So God's word must be recognized as above all human legislation. A thus saith the Lord is not to be set aside for a thus saith the church or a thus saith the state. Amen. The church's position on non-combatancy. Seventh-day Adventist non-combatants believe that in this world of sin, where war is unavoidable, they can perform the best service to their fellow men and to their country by ministering to the human welfare rather than by fighting to take human life. They desire to render the very greatest service within their capacities to their fellow men and to their government, the service of saving life rather than what? Now let me talk about the medics real quick. The medics... I believe their intentions in the right place. I believe when a medic, when a person joins the army and he wants to become a medic, I believe he wants to save life. What do you say? Amen? But that's not why the army wants him there. What, pastor? No. It's not during a time of war. During a time of war, the medic's responsibility is to keep the theater of operation, the theater of war, filled with our troops. 
So what he does when he goes out there, if his true sense was to uh, take care of the wounded, he would normally or naturally go after the most wounded, wouldn't he? Amen? And if that was his intention, would he care what side he's on? Come on now. Don't get quiet on me now. If he was truly there to save lives, would he care what side they're on? No, he wouldn't. But how's that going to look to the people that's on your side? You going helping one of their soldiers. Desmond Doss had that problem. And he compromised and quit it. God bless the brother now. Did Desmond Doss, did I, do I believe that God would bless Desmond Doss and watched over Desmond Doss? Absolutely, 100% I believe that. But do I believe he's my example? Absolutely not. Jesus is my example, amen? amen? He compromised, but did he live up to the truth he had? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. <laughs> but that's not my responsibility to use him as my example. I use Jesus Christ as my example, amen? Just like Barry Black. So, oh, look at Barry Black. Well, God bless Barry Black, but he's not my example. Jesus Christ is, amen? I've read his book, From the Hood to the Hill. God bless that brother. Do I believe he's wrong? Absolutely I believe he's wrong. But thank God, God meets each and every one of us where we're at. Amen? And he works with us where we're at. Amen? Praise God. I'm not here to condemn the man or no man that joins the military. But you can't say, I don't know, because I spent over seven and a half years in the military. I know. And I don't believe you can join the military in any capacity. And I'm going to show you what the church has said. Why they didn't want chaplains in the military. Why they said no to the government. And I believe it still stands today. Listen, brothers and sisters. When that medic comes in there, his, his, the, the military's expectations of him, irregardless of what they feel, the expectation of the military is that they find the least wounded as quickly as possible, heal them up, bandage them up, and get them back fighting. That's the expectations of the military. With the chaplain, the expectations of the military is this. They don't care if you're a righteous person. They could care less. They want you to sear the conscience of the soldier. In my next presentation, uh-oh, when's this one over? Okay, I got 10 minutes. We're almost there. My next presentation right after this at 1045, I got video clips of soldiers and chaplains. And they're going to tell you what the chaplain's there for. They know you're going to be blown away. But the expectations of the, uh, of the military for the chaplain is this. If you have a problem killing somebody, I'm going to just inform you and I'm going to teach you that God's on our side. So go ahead and do it. He's to sear the conscience of the soldier. And I'm going to have a videotape of a chaplain that's in war right now. He's in the field of operation. He's going to tell you exactly what he does. And you're going to listen to his prayer. And you're going to say, what? See if it's compatible with the gospel. Now, I'm not saying his intention's in the wrong place. Amen? I'm not here to judge his intention. Are we clear on that? I can't do that. Only God can do that. But I know the expectations of the military. And he will fulfill their role. So, Seventh-day Adventists, Nakamads believe that this, that this world of sin, where war is unavoidable, they can perform the best service to their fellow men and to their country by ministering to the human warfare rather than fighting, and I talked about destroying life. So, churches position on non-combatants, Seventh-day Adventists, who take the non-combatant position, do so because they believe they should follow the teachings and example of their who. But the Seventh-day Adventist that's drafted in, drafted, He's going to say, listen, I'm not going to bear arms. I'm not going to shoot somebody. And, and the commander's going to say, but i got a seven-day Adventist over here that's bearing arms. You see what's happened? The same thing when I go to these jobs and I, and I got this new person I just met. And I, I, listen, we got this. He wants, he's living up to the conviction that God has led him in the Bible. How can a man, that's not, how can a man who's, who's, who's faithful to God not be faithful to their employer? Amen. I said, you want a person like that, don't you? A person who's faithful to the God is definitely going to be faithful to their employer, amen? And then this one will say, but I got another seven-day Adventist over here, and he's been working for years on the Sabbath. I'm stuck, aren't I? Aren't I? I just say he's not a seven-day Adventist. Not in my church. I, I don't have any recourse, do I? 
Well, he's just not a practicing one. If you understand the theology of that one, can you explain that to me later when we're done with this? I don't know what that means. I'm just not a practicing seven-day event. What does that mean? Like, I'm not, I'm not a practicing person that's married to my wife. What does that mean? Either I'm or I'm not, right? That's why I don't know. I'm not maybe too theological deep in those areas. You can help me out. So we should follow the master's example. Amen? So here's some just things. The love, however, is not exclusive. It does not stop with our brethren, with our neighbors, with our friends. It is to be manifested even to our enemies. In Matthew 5, 43, 45. Among those things that Jesus declared to be incompatible with Christian conduct are physical uh, retaliation and revenge. Evil is not to be returned for evil. The pursuits of peace are to be the engagements of Christians. Revenge for injuries done is never to be characterized. A follower of Christ, enemies, instead of being killed, are to be fed and loved. Evil is not to be met with evil, but overcome with what? The sword is forbidden to the follower of Christ. Christ's servants are not to fight. Their warfare is not a fleshly warfare, nor are their weapons uh, material weapons. When injury is done, a Christian is to suffer it, not to seek revenge. This suffering, for righteousness' sake, is a Christian duty in a world of evil and opposition to Christ. It is to be endured with what? With patience. Christ carried out these teachings in his own life. He was what he taught. Consequently, the best commentary upon words in, is his life, just as the best interpretation of his life is his words. When he was reviled, he reviled not. Again, when he was injured, he did not retaliate. When the soldiers crucified him, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what. What did Stephen say? Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. That's the way of Christ. The reason for Christ's submissiveness was, not, was that he came into the world to save men by his atonement and establish his church by his example. His church was to be founded and built on those same principles of love, self-sacrifice, patience, and faith which characterize its divine head. He endured all this not because he was without power to resist and prevent it like my brother was over here. He was going to punch a guy. <laughs> he, he was in the military and thank God he didn't because the next guy, the, his boss came back and apologized to him. <laughs> but imagine if he would have punched him. What would that have solved? And listen to me, brothers and sisters. No one ever wins in war. Amen? Amen? And no one ever wins a fight. There's always casualties. Whether you think you won or not, Still a casualty. Amen? So no one ever wins in war. There's always casualties. Exemplifying the central principle of his kingdom, a principle that his followers are to practice as the foundational principle of their lives. At his command were all the host of heaven, but he did not call on them. To sum up, the foregoing Seventh-day Adventist War Service Commission statement, this had been the church's position from the days of the Civil War all the way up to the 1954 Annual Council, when non-combatancy was voted in as the official position of the denomination. However, during the Vietnam War, the church had to revisit the previous statement. Now, this is the church's statement right here. I got about three minutes. Now, this is all just history. The next session is going to be all practical. You don't want to miss it. We're going to have a really good time. This is the church, in, or when the government came to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, says, listen, we want chaplains from your, your, your denomination. We're doing it with all the churches. Listen to what our church said. Government employment and remuneration from public funds for the teaching of religion is a violation of biblical principles regarding what? So if I'm wearing the uniform and being paid by them, but yet trying to defend the church at the same time, isn't that a conflict of interest? The military is paying me for one thing, but yet I'm to preach another gospel. The church's position is to have complete separation of church and state, as stated by the General Conference Committee of January 29, 1908. Watch. Clergy employed by the government could not preach the full gospel message for this prophetic hour. Now let me ask you a question. Can they do it now? Has it changed so much now that the, the, the chaplain go and say, listen here, I know we're at war, but you're not supposed to break the Sabbath. Can he do that now? Can he tell them, listen, 
The Bible says you shouldn't kill, sister. You shouldn't do that. That's counterproductive to mission. Of course you can't do that. Embarrassment would arise from the chaplains who would have to defend the church's non-combatant position and at the same time fulfill their function as moral, morale builders. You've got to encourage them soldiers to go fight and you're going to learn that in the next session. But at the same time, tell them, listen, don't bear arms. You're sending two different messages. The purpose of ministering to Seventh-day Adventists in the military can be best carried cared for by the camp pastor plan. The possibility of Seventh-day Adventist chaplains being placed where other Seventh-day Adventists are placed is very remote. General Conference Committee. And I have a friend in Chicago. He's not in the military. And he goes on the naval base all the time and preaches. And guess what he can preach? The whole gospel message. Amen? So, we have to look at that and say, listen, should I be in the military? Can I join the military and be faithful to God at the same time? I don't believe you can. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.gycweb.org dot audioverse dot org